0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usri, and I'm pleased to welcome Adam Brooks back to the program today for the second of a two-part interview. Adam is a true world traveler, having been born in Canada, grew up in Britain, and worked all over Asia. He's a journalist and novelist. He primarily served as BBC correspondent for Beijing, Jakarta, and Washington, D.C. His novels include Night Heron, Spy Games, and The Spy's Daughter. Today, we'll finish discussing his new nonfiction title, Fragile Cargo, the World War II Race to Save the Treasure of China's Forbidden City, which is published by Atria. Adam, thank you so much for coming back this week to discuss Fragile Cargo a little bit more. We had met the protagonist of the story just at the end of our previous episode, Ma Hung. There are several works of art that you kind of track through the period of their wandering around the country. So if we could kind of meet these works and describe them and kind of get an understanding of why these are so important to China's heritage. The first one is a painting called Early Snow on the River.
1: I picked Early Snow on the River really fairly randomly just because I love it as a painting myself. And I think it's a very accessible painting for a non-specialist audience to take a look at. It's a long hand scroll. That means that it's all rolled up tight in a scroll and you lay it down in front of you and you unroll it from left to right a little bit at a time. And it's a narrative painting. So as you go along the hand scroll, this sort of story or a place and a time unfold before you. And the painting is a depiction of a river with reeds and rocks and a riverbank and fishermen at work all along the river. So it's a very, very detailed and very generous and loving and expressive examination of the life of fishermen on a river of China about a thousand years ago, maybe 1100 years ago. It was painted in the 10th century by a student called Zhao Gan, who lived in a little kingdom called Southern Tang. China at the time was all split apart. The Tang empire had dissolved, the great Song empire had not yet arisen, and China was this great kind of array of little statelets and little kingdoms And Southern Tang was one of these kingdoms in eastern China, in the lush, watery regions of eastern China. And Zhao Gan painted this extraordinary depiction of the lives of fishermen and travellers on a riverbank as snow just begins to fall in late fall, early winter. So it's a freezing cold, dark, gloomy painting. And everybody, all the fishermen are shivering and huddling in their huts and sitting around braziers and fires, trying to stay warm. And they're poling their skiffs across the river and they're peering in their nets. And there's a little group of travellers just making their way along the riverbank. That's a, a convention of Chinese landscape painting, right? You always have a sort of movement in the foreground, you have people in the landscape, and then you have people moving through the landscape. And we see these travellers picking their way along the riverbank. And it's just an extraordinarily delicate, beautiful painting which places sort of human awareness and human consciousness very much at the centre of the cosmos. It's not a painting about God or authority or empires or or religion or institutions or any of that. It's about people. It's about simple ways of living at this particular point in history. And I just think it's a very beautiful and expressive painting. It came into the imperial collections sometime over the last four or five hundred years it had been there ever since. It's covered in imperial seals. The seals of the Qianlong Emperor himself are on it. It's just a lovely, lovely thing. <laughs> and I wanted to write about it and kind of introduce Western readers who might not very f- be familiar with the stuff with some of the underlying concepts of, of Chinese painting. What's next beyond that? There is a beautiful piece of porcelain that I follow as well on this journey. I follow it all around.
0: It has an unusual name: the Monk's Cap ewer.
1: So a ewer. It's a kind of jug, essentially. It's a jug with a spout and a handle and a cap on top. And the monk's cap, you uh, the cap on it looks a little bit like a priest's hat. So it's called a monk's cap, you uh. But the thing about this porcelain, it's a piece of Ming empire porcelain. It was made in the 15th century. And the thing about it, it's an exquisite piece of porcelain, but the thing about it that's really special is the glaze. It's its color. It's this deep, luscious, very complex red And this red is incredibly hard to achieve. You have to put copper oxide in the glaze and then you have to fire the porcelain with this glaze, very, very hot, in a kiln that has no oxygen in it. It's called firing and reduction. And it's a very difficult state to achieve inside a kiln, or it was for those guys back in the 14th century. And unless you get the conditions absolutely right of temperature and reduction, the lack of oxygen in the kiln, unless you get it exactly right, the glaze won't work. It won't come out red. The chemistry doesn't work. It comes out a kind of ashy colour, and it's just not interesting at all. So to get this incredible red was a matter of incredible expertise And for every successful piece that came out of the kiln, this beautiful red, hundreds and hundreds failed, and they'd just be thrown away and smashed. So this red from the 15th century, from about 1420, 1430, is incredibly rare. And it's fantastically valuable. And there are very few pieces in the world extant today that still have that copper red glaze. And they are incredibly valuable. And the ones that are in imperial collections even more so. So that's another piece. What I'm trying to do here in the book is introduce you to the idea of Chinese porcelain, this extraordinary commodity, mostly manufactured in the legendary city of Jingdezhen in East Central China, that became this colossal global commodity and was, you know, shaped the fate of empires. And I want you to think a little bit about Chinese porcelain through looking at this this copper-red ewer and following its journey all over China in World War II.
0: So much so that this porcelain ware is named after the country, China.
1: Uh, Or at least we gave it that name. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The thing about porcelain is, and, and this is something that we kind of don't appreciate, until about 1000 AD, All, you know, your jugs and your bowls and your plates were made of earthenware or stoneware or some form of those clays. And they were grey or brown. Porcelain is white. And it isn't just any kind of white. It's this fabulous, dazzling, snowy white. And only Chinese potters knew how to make it. And from about 1000 AD onwards, they started getting better and better at it, particularly around the city of Jingdezhen, which has got the particular clays, particular kinds of kaolin and mica in the mountains around there, that when fired correctly in the kiln, come out this stunning, beautiful white. So the white is beautiful in and of itself, and it's so, it's very strong as well, this porcelain. So you can make it very thin, very delicate. And the light is almost, it's almost translucent. Kind of come through it and then because it's so beautifully white it takes these glazes incredibly well the glazes the colors pop on the white porcelain and suddenly people around the world started to see this Chinese porcelain coming out of China through the 12th 13th 14th 15th centuries and everyone was like what on earth is this stuff it's absolutely beautiful and we want it so they started buying porcelain from China and the earliest Western merchants from Portugal, particularly Spain, the Netherlands, France, and later Britain, would send their ships to China and they would just come back loaded down with porcelain, which then started taking over the European markets throughout the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Chinese porcelain was this huge global commodity and vast amounts of Western silver started flooding to China to pay for it. And it became this incredibly important commodity. And you can make a pretty good argument that the city of Jingdezhen, that was the center of porcelain manufacture in China, was in fact the world's first industrial city. It was using mass production to make a a mass commodity for export in a globalized market. It was the first great industrial globalized city. And from then on, you know, the story of porcelain is just, it just gets larger and larger. And I try in the book to give you a little bit of a sense of its importance.
0: So next we have these huge stones called the Stone Drums of Chin and these, what, 500 pounds or so each stones are paradoxically among the most delicate things that need to be transported.
1: So they decide in 1933, when they're packing up all these, this incredibly valuable art to evacuate it away from the Japanese advance, they decide to take with them these granite boulders known as the stone drums of Jin. They're not drums at all. They just kind of look like drums. So they're called drums. But the significance of these chunks of rock lies in the fact that they are inscribed with poetry about 500 BC, poets sat down and they carved poems into the rock using a script that was almost unique to that time, a very, very important transitional script that lies just before the growth of Chinese characters as we know them today. These inscriptions are of enormous cultural value. Not only the poems themselves are important, but the graphs that are used to write them are fantastically important however over the years these uh, stone drums have been mishandled terribly and the outside of them has begun to flake off the granite is kind of flaking away and the outside of the stones are now kind of brittle as eggshell and if you put any pressure on them more stuff flakes on and more of the inscriptions get lost so they have to figure out a way of packing each chunk of granite with their incredibly fragile inscriptions and they do it and they manage. they manage to you know, these half-ton pieces of rock. But these were the largest and most difficult pieces to transport out of pretty much anything, out of the quarter of a million pieces that they evacuated from the Japanese and transported all over China for 16 years. These are the heaviest, the most unwieldy, and, and among the most fragile as well. Yeah, So I follow their story as well as we go through this, and I follow them through the book on their journey.
0: Now, I remember hearing someone say that every glass is temporarily unbroken. And that seems so much of human effort is to fight against entropy, so what were the methods they used in packing and transporting that help fight against entropy?
1: yeah, it's very interesting that you should raise that word. I've thought about it quite a lot, and you're right it is in the end, the act of artistic conservation is a battle against against entropy, isn't it? it's a battle against stuff breaking down into its smallest constituent parts, and the curators had to figure out. How to put this incredibly fragile, delicate art you know ink on silk, ink on paper, fragile books and texts, porcelain, jade, ancient bronzes with handles and nozzles and spouts, and you know very, very delicate things. They had to figure out how to get them into these wooden cases, how to keep them still and protect them from, basically from kinetic energy, from movement, from vibration, from being dropped. So what they did was they originated ways of separating out the pieces one from another. They wrapped them in a cotton wadding. They wrapped them in hemp cord. They covered them in heavy paper. They packed them separate from each other in the cases, and they jammed more cotton wadding and straw and rice husks between these bundles of packed objects. And they got it down to a pretty precise science. And they had principles that they laid down on how every type of object should be packed. And the packing ended up to be highly, highly successful. Quite a bit of stuff did get broken on the way, but it's remarkable how little got broken given how much got transported and how fragile it was. So the packing, I focus on quite a bit in the book because it was so central to the entire endeavor.
0: Now, of course, the reason they have to move this out of the Forbidden City, is the constant encroachment of Japan from the north of China down toward Peking. And Japan seemed, you write, that they had this idea that they were to be the leaders of Asia and everyone needed to fall in line behind them. And it seems so reminiscent of the war with Russia and Ukraine right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, interesting parallels in how empire moves and how it conceives of itself. Japan had in its nationalism and its ambition this kind of cultural component to it. There was much more than a cultural component. Obviously, it was about you know Japan expanded for room and resources and oil and rubber and territory and all these things. But it also had this cultural and racial component, which was that Japanese nationalist intelligentsia in the late 19th century, early 20th century, formulated these ideas that the rest of Asia under colonialism had become weak and degraded. And other Asian nations and ethnicities were unable to free themselves from the colonial shackles. It was only the Japanese who were able to resist colonialism and to free Asia from colonialism. And in order to do so, Japan needed to become the true master of Asia and Asia's guide. And you can read any number of Japanese authors writing this stuff in the early, in the early part of the 20th century. And they believed that Asian culture, including its material culture, rightfully should be stewarded and overseen by Japan and the Japanese. So people in China were very aware of this and they knew that the Japanese were after very important uh, elements of of their shared cultural roots, of their cultural tradition, Buddhist texts and objects, Confucian classics, ancient texts, bronzes, all these things that are source material for Chinese tradition and Japanese tradition is incredibly valuable to, to Japanese scholars and to, and, and to those in the Japanese tradition. So it was clear in the minds of Chinese people in the 1930s that as Japan came for China, came for Chinese territory, came for Chinese resources, it was also coming for Chinese culture. That was what they felt at the time. The other thing that scared them witless was air raids. The Japanese had figured out how to do aerial bombing. They had extremely technologically advanced aviation, and they were the first perpetrators of protracted aerial terror bombing against civilian populations. That first happened in Shanghai in 1932. I think you make a good argument for that. It wasn't the first time people had been bombed from the air but it was the first time that World War II style bombing was really prefigured. And in Shanghai in 1932, the Japanese bombed. Vaster parts of the city set it on fire, killed thousands of people, and crucially, they bombed a building called Commercial Press and the attached Oriental Library, and they destroyed a huge collection of paintings, objects, and texts. So it was very clear that air raids posed a very significant threat to the well-being of museums and collections and culture as a whole. And so these curators in nineteen thirty three, by this time, they'd seen Japanese air raids. Japanese aircraft were already flying overhead, over Peking. Japanese troops were only four hours away by road now. They were at the Great Wall, just north of Peking. That was the moment that the Palace Museum decided it needed to evacuate.
0: It's so ironic that Japan at the time thought the answer to colonialism was their colonizing of the rest of Asia. It was almost like they were imitating what Kipling would call America. Uh, the white man's burden for their invasion of the Philippines earlier?
1: You know, I, I think you can see in Asia very clearly, perhaps more clearly than you can see it in Europe, this idea that World War II, rather than being how we normally conceive of it as a clash between democracy and fascism, a clash between a titanic, you know, contest between right and wrong, that the war in Asia shows us the degree to which it was a clash of empires. Japanese nationalism was very much preoccupied with its own role in forcing the European empires out of Asia. They wanted to force the Americans out of the Philippines. They wanted to force the Dutch out of the Dutch East Indies, today Indonesia. They wanted to force the French out of French Indochina, today Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. They wanted to force the British out of Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong, and Burma. And they wanted to take these countries for themselves in what they called an Asian co-prosperity sphere but which was a sphere of influence and control that would be um, presided over by the Japanese emperor so yeah it was an imperial clash in Asia I really do believe this and I think scholarship today is beginning to really show us clearly the degree to which World War II was a clash of empires
0: And maybe we shouldn't think that September 1939 was the beginning of World War II.
1: I will argue till the day I die that it was not, and and that that our periodization of World War II cuts us off from understanding the true nature of that war. A new book by Richard Overy, the great historian, calls it The Last Imperial War and dates it from 1931 to 45. And he dates it for that reason, because that's when the Japanese took Manchuria, took northeastern China. And he takes us through Japanese expansionism through Asia in the 1930s. He takes us through the Italian invasion of Abyssinia, which today we call Ethiopia, through the Spanish Civil War. All these wars that sort of prefigured and, and led us up to what we think of as the global conflict of the Second World War. The older I get, the more I feel that these dates that we cling to so rigidly, 1939 to 1945, cut us off from the notion that this was a much larger and longer lasting war, and that it was a war that was really about empire and colonialism.
0: Now, we've talked about several other figures involved in this great effort, but Ouyang Dauda, he was fastidious and disciplined, and how would your research have been without his writings and his reminiscences of what went on?
1: So one of the other curators that I follow, yes, is this guy Ouyang Yang Daoda. He was a starchy, difficult, disciplinarian, and he was, as far as I can tell, absolutely central to the logistics and the discipline of the whole operation, of moving these 20,000 cases all over China for 16 years. He was absolutely central to it. And he kept everybody in line. I think everybody else was a bit scared of him because he was so critical and abrasive in his comments to the other curators. Whenever a piece got broken, whenever something went wrong, it was Ouyang Daoda who wrote the vitriolic, scolding letters to the people concerned. He kept the discipline. Going. He kept the whole operation turning over, kept it tight as far as I can tell. And he also wrote the most detailed account of the whole thing from 1933 to 1949 a long handwritten manuscript, 80,000 words that he wrote in 1950. And it's full of chronology and dates and times and details. And it provides us with a sort of fundamental understanding of what took place. So my account draws very heavily on his chronology. His book that he wrote in 1950 was lost. It disappeared for 56 years. Nobody knew where it was. And then it was discovered, the original handwritten manuscript was discovered sitting on a bookshelf somewhere in a storehouse in the Forbidden City, forgotten. In 2006, they found this manuscript laying out in enormous detail everything that had happened. And it was only published publicly in 2010. So I began working on Fragile Cargo on my book in 2012. So I I think I was pretty much the first person outside China to start paying attention to this manuscript and to this account. And yes, it was absolutely invaluable. And this man's personality was absolutely invaluable to this extraordinary enterprise.
0: And you even had the opportunity to speak to two people who had been very young, but were on this tour of China.
1: Yeah. So back to that curator Zhuang Yen, who was the guy who who was so joyful and enthusiastic going into the Forbidden City in 1924, the young archaeologist. He had a number of children, and one of his sons was called Zhuang Ling. And I was able to interview him in 2019 in Taipei, in Taiwan. And he was able to tell me all about his childhood on the road with his father through World War II, escorting these cases to the far west of China and guarding them for six, seven years out there, storing these cases full of invaluable art in a cave out in Guizhou province, living out in little villages in the far west of China as his father tried to conserve this art through through the war years, looking after it. And Zhuanglin gave me fabulous details about what the family was like, and how they lived, and what they ate, and how the children's favourite dishes was fried crispy pork over noodles, and how they would go foraging for mushrooms and herbs up in the hills, and reminiscence of, of his father, and how it, what it was just like being a young bright child in China's World War Two, and that just gave me enormous texture and depth and insight into into the whole process. And the other guy I got to interview was himself a curator who was part of the the effort moving the cases around in the late 1940s. His name was So Yu Ming, and he was 100 years old when I interviewed him. He recently passed away, sadly, but I think I was one of the last people ever to interview him about his experiences. But that also was very moving and very useful, just knowing that I was you know, just one step away from that history.
0: Kind of back to that feeling of entropy, there's an old adage, moving three times is bad as a fire. And the determination of these men to preserve the cultural heritage of China was just incredible.
1: They were very devoted. I mean, the ones that I feature in my book, In Fragile Cargo, were the guys who stuck with it and who wrote memoirs, and who went on to spend their whole lives as museum curators. So these were real professionals. There were a lot of other people who were not able to stick with it, and who kind of fell away. But the central core of curators, probably about 20 or so curators, were incredibly dedicated. They never gave up. 16 years, they stuck with it. As far as I can tell, they never lost a case and they never lost a piece stuff got broken there were numerous disasters but it, it was never the case that they kind of lost track or gave up responsibility for the art they took it as written and I think the imp- their impulse came from a number of things I mean I think They were deeply committed to the art itself and to the act of conservation, but they were also committed to the Republic of China and its resistance to Japan. And they felt that in conserving this art and keeping it safe and keeping it from the advancing Japanese, they were part of a larger effort, which was the attempt to keep alive the idea of an independent, sovereign China in the face of Japanese invasion. You must remember that the Republic of China under Chiang Kai-shek, was the only nation state to continue fighting the Japanese in Asia. Every other Asian nation state capitulated before the Japanese. The Dutch capitulated, the British capitulated, the French capitulated. Every other country capitulated. The Republic of China was the only country to continue to resist the Japanese uh, advance until the Americans And to some extent, the British arrived. So they felt that they were part of a larger outpost of resistance to Japanese imperialism. And their job was to protect this art as part of this larger task.
0: To keep themselves in the minds of people in the West or around the world, that we are here, we are still fighting for our existence. They did let part of the collection go outside of the country to Britain and to Russia, to help advertise this Chinese resolve?
1: The Republic of China under Chiang Kai-shek and his party, the KMT, you know, that ruled you know, until 1949, was constantly struggling to gain any status or any voice in international affairs. It was an ally of Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union during World War II. The leaders of China, Jiang Kai-shek himself, were never kind of really accorded the status that they gave themselves, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin gave themselves. They struggled to get aid. They struggled to get attention. And indeed, this entire effort that China put into resisting Japan in World War II has kind of been forgotten in Europe and the United States. It's sort of been memory hold. People do not know that somewhere between 14 and 20 million Chinese died in World War II. The war was fought in China on an epic scale. It was huge. It was colossal. But we don't think about it. And in particularly in the anglophone world, we don't see any representations of China's World War II. You don't see many books. You don't see any movies. If you go to the big war museums in Europe and the States, you don't really see the war in China represented in any way. And it was, it felt like that at the time for them as well. They felt that they weren't getting any notice or any much assistance. And so, yes, one of the things they decided to do was to send this art abroad at one point and hold these massive exhibitions to kind of remind people in the West that China was a country worth fighting for. It had the civilization, it had this fantastic art, and maybe Europe and the United States should be paying a bit more attention. It helped a bit. It didn't help much. China did receive aid from the United States after 1941. American forces and British forces fought alongside Chinese troops against the Japanese, particularly in Burma. But the Republic of China was pretty much on its own. And the Republic of China was shattered by World War II, absolutely shattered. And its pyrrhic victory over Japan at the, in 1945 really laid the ground for the rise of communism. The Republic was so destroyed by the that it was unable to resist the rise of the chinese communist party and that is why we have a people's republic of china today
0: it almost seems like a replay of the first world war now granted russia lost to japan in the russo-japanese war but you know at the very end stages of world war 1 with the revolution happening in russia
1: the toll that these wars took is unimaginably huge i mean both in russia and in china and i mean consider that you know, in the case of the Second world War, you know total American casualties, civilian and military, total deaths, just over four hundred thousand in China, you know something like twenty million in the Soviet union more twenty five million who knows? We'll never know the full numbers in China. The accounting just isn't there, but the trauma that these countries went through was enormous, I mean profound, and yes, indeed, by the end of World War two in China. People were so beaten up, starved, diseased, displaced. Inflation was out of control. The state was basically collapsing. Services had broken down. The Republic of China was in terrible, terrible straits. And so people were looking for new ideas and new solutions. They were looking to Chairman Mao and the Chinese Communist Party.
0: Reading about the intentional breaking of the levee on the river that cost so many hundreds of thousands, if not over a million lives was, I'd never read about that before. And to think that a government could do that to their own people was just incredible.
1: So this is 1938, yeah, where where the Republic is frantically trying to slow down the Japanese advance. They blew up the dikes that controlled the Yellow River, and they allowed the river to flood out into central China. Uh, It inundated a colossal area Uh, thousands of square miles of central China, in order to try and bog down the Japanese advance. But in doing that, by their own estimate, the Chinese government killed probably 800,000 of their own people. Some historians think the number's not that high, but it's certainly hundreds of thousands of people died in the immediate aftermath. So this is the Republic of China killing its own people in in an ecological crime to try and slow down the Japanese advance. But that inundation then contributed to famine in the years to come and many, many millions more starved to death in 1942,
0: 43, yeah. You were a journalist. You've written novels. What was it like taking a book-length project in the nonfiction world? Like, how is that different from your previous writing experiences?
1: I mean, as a journalist, you know, you work with sources. I wasn't coming at it completely cold. Uh, I've been paying attention to China... For quite a long time, I lived in China for a while, and was a reporter there. So I could read. I can read in Chinese. The fiction writing, I, I, it feels to me like that was a great exercise in learning how to do narrative and pace. I hope. I mean, I you know, I hope it helped me, and I hope that the book has. The feel of of a narrative about it, of a story about it that you you get called through it, and that there are people and characters in it so i I hope that the fiction writing helped me do that but i mean the big the big deal here is that in a in a book of nonfiction, you are writing to this external reference. I mean, you, you're writing to history. You're writing to documents. That there are stable external truths out there, and you've got to do justice to them, and you've got to do right by them. So it's a different process. It's a very different writing process. But it was a wonderful, wonderful process, and it's a little more sociable than writing fiction. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you write fiction, you are really stuck on your own. You close the door, and you are in your own head for a couple of years. When you write narrative nonfiction, you get to go out and meet people and interview people and go to archives and conferences. And, you know, it's great. It's terrific, good fun. So I enjoyed that side of it a lot. But it's, you know, it's difficult doing justice to the subject matter. And I rely very heavily on the work of real historians and scholarly history for the kind of much of the basis of of, um, the larger context to the story. Yeah.
0: It seems like the stamina you have to have is just incredible.
1: It was, it was a long time. It was a lot of work. I mean, I got a lot of help. I had a wonderful researcher in China who helped me sort through primary source material. There's a lot of stuff out there in China that talks about the story, and a lot of it's not very reliable. So he helped me figure out what the reliable sources were in Chinese so that I could focus on reliable primary sources. So that was an enormous amount of help. I had historians read the manuscript and comment on it for me, which was very important. I'm not a trained historian myself, you know, so I needed to have people read this stuff. And, you know, I had very good editors. My wife is my first editor. She's an extremely accomplished editor and and, and no slouch when it comes to Chinese history. You know, you get a lot of help and you can ask people for help. It's not a solo adventure. It really shouldn't be a solo adventure, I don't think. In the end it's you know it's my problem in the end and the mistakes are mine, but but you do get help along the way
0: yeah. So has there been another topic to catch your eye and another potential book project?
1: Oh, I'm always looking around. I, I would like to build on these ideas about China in World War II if I could. I think there's a lot of history to uncover for the general reader here and I think ideas about World War II are changing and I think we all need to become a bit more competent on China. I think we should be better readers of China, Chinese history and Chinese affairs in general, if we're going to understand this place that now occupies such a large part in our lives and in our global economy and politics, you know, China is only going to get more important, it's not going to, it's not going to get less important. And We need to know what this entity we call China is, where it comes from, what the Chinese Communist Party is, how it sees himself, what are what are the stories that Chinese people tell themselves about themselves? What how do they identify themselves to themselves? Where do they see themselves as coming from? What are their preoccupations? You know, these these are things we should know something about. And I think we're still very broadly, you know, I think we're still pretty impoverished in our understanding of China. And and I think If I can find ways of bringing some of these stories alive a bit so that the general reader can kind of leap in and get a few more handholds on Chinese history, I would love to be doing that if I could make it work. Yeah.
0: Well, Adam, I want to thank you so much for spending two episodes with us. It's been fascinating to read Fragile Cargo and talk about it. And once again, thank you so much, sir.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed
0: it. Adam Brooks is the author of Fragile Cargo the World War II race to save the treasures of China's Forbidden City, which is published by Atria. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.